Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God's Speaker Step Series. Now let's have our joke from Joey, the jumping jokester. How you guys doing? I'm Joey, the jokester. Hey, Uh, here for another riveting joke for everyone. Here we go. This one, oh, this one is brought to you by... The beautiful man himself, Michael Chase, and God bless him for providing it. All right. Two cowboys are lost in the desert. One cowboy sees a tree that's draped in bacon. A bacon tree. We're saved, he says. He runs to the tree and is shot up with bullets. It wasn't a bacon tree. It was a ham bush. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Andrew. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise and that might well distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? If so, let's start the meditation. Thank you. 
right now, I'd like to lead us in the fog light prayer. If you don't know it, repeat after me. God, God let your love shine through me like a fog light, so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. Amen. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. Tonight I've asked Marco to come up and read Appendix 2, entitled Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. Hi, I'm Marcos. I'm an alcoholic. Um, The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God-consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life. That such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is an essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most most empathetically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof 
against all arguments and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. Thank you. Thank you, Marcos. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane slash meeting mode or just turn it off. Now I'd like to introduce our speaker. Uh, his name is Joe B., and uh, his reputation certainly precedes him. I'm excited to hear what he has to say. Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. Um, <laughs> That's already been said. My name is Joe Bear. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, it's really good to be here, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's always a pleasure uh, and an honor to to do what our 12 step asks us to do to carry the message, right? And um, you know, this is really cool. This is kind of intimate. It's very intimate and uh, cozy, and um, it's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, you know, I have. In my prayer and prep, I I uh, I take this so seriously because you know for so long I didn't take it seriously. I couldn't I couldn't hear what was being said. I couldn't hear uh, the the most valuable things about Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because I was so consumed with my own conversations that were going on in my head. So the things that would save my life. In my in my first uh, introductions to AA and meetings and so forth and speakers and and whatnot was uh, basically useless where I, where I was living in my mind. So um, tonight I I want to speak to the people out there that uh, or and perhaps in here um, that are just getting back to AA or have never been to AA. Those that are dying from the disease of alcoholism and addiction that are really looking for the truth of the matter. Um, you know, you, it's like in church you have course, courses, right? You have these uh, course lines and the, and the choir that, that always chimes into the main song. And they know the song, they know the rhythm, they know the words, they know the beat, they know the, the melody and so forth. And um, there's people like that in Alcoholics Anonymous that know the information and experience the information. And even though a speaker, uh, for instance, myself up here tonight, I could say things and miss things, but they're going to be able to fill in the blanks. But perhaps the people that aren't, the people that are, are coming in for the first time are coming back because they have just struggled like I did, you need if you're anything like me i need to know not only the the what's but i need to know the why's and the hows i need to know why i'm dying from a fatal illness why i have a death sentence within my skin and for some reason just can't overcome it uh time after time after time so uh my message is for you tonight and the reason i say that the reason i preface that is because <sighs> I'll probably go into the information that is contained in our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, which isn't like a drug story or an alcohol story or a war story. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, a program of 
Information. This book contains the information that will, number one, have you identify with perhaps what you have been struggling with, right? And it will bring up some scenarios and give you some information to where you can actually concede to your innermost self that you're truly an alcoholic or a drug addict and can't manage your own life. We're going to contain the conversation to uh, alcohol because that's what we do in in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. However, you can substitute any chemical substance that you wish. The solution is the same, right? The, the, the action is the same. And uh, it gets us to the same place, that jumping off place. So um, hopefully you'll, you'll get value out of it. And, uh, you know, we, we have to start in the beginning because, listen, I'm just going to tell you what I've been taught. Uh, I don't consider myself a teacher, Perhaps a coach, maybe, for people coming into Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, but I had, one of them is dead now, but I have had teachers in my past that come from a, come from a, uh, line, a lineage that is just very, very committed to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you wonder why I keep tapping on this book, and I keep talking about this book, because the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous took its name from the book. So the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the way out, the secret, the, 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 the whole process of what, what we have to undergo is contained within these pages. These pages will literally uh, enable you to have an entire psychic change, a.k.a. spiritual experience, a.k.a. spiritual awakening, profound alteration, uh, transformation, however you want to describe it. But it will give you the caterpillar to the butterfly effect. Okay, so when you go in, we all go in one way, pretty much terribly broken, right? Shattered in a thousand pieces, having no idea how to get out. And if you're anything like me, when I got to, you know, when I got to, when I finally met the teacher that taught me everything about becoming a man, becoming, you know, uh, sober, uh, living sober, you know, acquiring all the principles that they talk about uh, in this design that we implement into our into ourselves, into our being, right? And and the discarding of all the selfish and self-centered principles, so that we have a different perspective on life. All it, it, it it's it's all in here. So um, let's get started. Right? So the first thing that we get taught in the very beginning, in the preface of the book, one of the most important pieces of that preface is to learn that this is a textbook. That um, if you've ever had a textbook, like we all have, like in school, we get introduced to textbooks, right? They're books of instruction. They're books of instruction to go from point A to point B. And so we study this as a textbook. It's not a read. It's not a one-time read. It's not a drama story. It's none of that stuff, right? It is a literal book of instruction. So... um, a couple of distinctions that I want to make uh, before we go, before we go on is, you know, there's there's no there's no real demand for anybody to have to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. The demand comes from the beating that is is levied upon you by alcoholism, right? It's it just it tears you, it destroys you. They they have a, a line in here that describes it as the annihilation of all things worthwhile in life, where. For me, I was wishing for the end. When I got here, 
It, and this is, lo- this is long after I was first introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. This is after a horrendous uh, struggle after being introduced into Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, but I'm talking about uh, in the early 2000s, when I finally met my teacher, um, it, was, it was that period of time in my life where I had come to really feel hopeless, didn't have a way out, um, wishing for the end. I literally disgusted myself. The man in the mirror, as far as I was concerned, validated everybody that, would, that, that, that I assumed felt that I was worthless. I felt worthless. I felt hopeless. And I hated myself. I hated my own guts. I hated me. And uh, I despised me. You know, and, and I think you know, when, when, when an individual, when a human being gets to that place, they see no more reason to live. There's no more reason to, to, to breathe. And um, I was actively trying to design an exit strategy from earth, right? Um, I didn't want to have anything more to do with it. I, it was too painful for me. I had destroyed so many people in the process. I had broken every relationship that I had. I, there was no trust. Um, I was only existing, right? Um, and I just, you know, I don't know how it transpired. I was over on the West Coast of Florida, and I, I called John, you know, and John Williams, he's, he's passed now, but uh, he became my sponsor for many years. And he says, come on over here, and he says, let's see what we can do with you. I said, okay, I'll do it one last time. And I came over. And I went into a, a sober environment that he had owned at the time and uh, begged him to sponsor me, and he did. And uh, everything from that moment on changed. Everything, when I, it just being in relationship with him as my sponsor changed my whole outlook. It, it in and of itself gave me hope. That if I could, if I could link onto this guy and I could follow the instructions, because I had no more argument, I had no more good ideas on how to approach life in a meaningful manner. Um, that that possibly, if I was if if I was to follow his instruction, that maybe there was hope. You know, it was kind of like that last gasp at effort, right? Um, you know, we all. I don't know if. If all of us, but I think most of us experience that that place that we get to where we're in the middle of the ocean and we're just going down for the last gasp. We're we're going we're, we're going to we're going to drown, and uh, the sharks are circling, and then all of a sudden somebody comes by and throws you a life preserver, and you grab on, right? So um, that started a journey that literally. Not only changed my life, but taught me life. Taught me everything about growing up, being a man, you know, being an effective member in society, um, responsibility, integrity, accountability, discipline, commitment. Yeah, I mean, you name it. Everything that I was void of, and I was void of everything, right? So I needed uh, not to be rehabilitated. I need to be habilitated. I needed to be shown how to live life and um so you know and and when i when i met him he says look he says the only answers that i can give you are what i've learned in the big book of alcoholics anonymous right so the book of instruction that's important um a couple of other things are 
that, that were impactful for me in the, in the forward to the first edition says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Anytime anybody says that I'm, recovered, I'm a recovered alcoholic, that's exactly what they're talking about. The recovered state of the hopeless state of mind and body. If our minds are hopelessly entrenched in the possibility that someday, somehow, I'll be able to drink and control my liquor like other people, or that I'll be able to figure this thing out, or that I'll be able to get away with having one or two, or that I'll go back to being a social drinker, somehow, some way, I want to be able to control and enjoy my drinking. They say that that's one of the facts of alcoholics, right? Well, they're talking about this hopeless state of mind and body. So what we're going to talk about is this hopeless state of mind and body, being that we're on step one. And we got to know exactly what that means. Matter of fact, they have it in squiggly writing. I call it squiggly writing. They, you know, you'll go, if you've read this book and read this book, um, primarily to the people out there that may be watching for the very first time, if you see italicized words, it simply means that it, pay attention right? Like, pay attention. Like, this is really important. As a matter of fact, it's so important that back in 1939, when they wrote this book and typed it out, they literally had to exchange the keys from regular, regular keys, regular print keys to italicized keys. And it was a painstaking effort. They had to take them physically out of the typewriter and put the italicized keys in, type it, and then change them all again. And they go through this Numerous times in this book. So when you get in this book and you see those italicized, they're, they're, they're italicized for a reason. And it's like, pay attention, right? So it says, hopeless state of mind and body. If an alcoholic can't stop starting, right? In other words, it's not hard to get stopped. Human beings can get you stopped. You know, we hear all the time that no human, no human uh, power can relieve us of our alcoholism, Right? But human power can get us stopped. And if anybody in here, I mean, or out there in the universe, um, has tried this thing and uh, got incarcerated, like I did, got hospitalized, like I did, went to detox, like I did, numerous times, I stopped every time. Um, the problem wasn't stopping, and it isn't stopping for anybody in this room. We can all stop. Matter of fact, if you intentionally want to stop, you can go slap a cop and they'll stop you for six months, literally. I think it's six months. Might be a little longer now or different places in the country. But the fact is, it's not, it's not stopping that's the problem. It's being able to stay stopped. We could not stay stopped because of the hopeless state of the mind. Right? Anytime you see hopeless state of mind and body, it's always mind first and then body. Right? We're going to explain why a little bit further down in the book. But if my mind has this obsessive lie where no matter what devastation, how many broken relationships, how the family's in turmoil, all the prices that I've paid, all the things that I've lost in my life, all the collateral damage of all the people that I've blown through their lives tells me absolutely that I've got a drinking problem. Matter of fact, they're all telling me I have a drinking problem. You need to stop drinking, Joe. And know that everything in my life hangs in the balance. And I get stopped. And all of a sudden, two or three days later, I'm feeling a little better. 
I might have a smile or two. Got a little couple pounds put back on. Bloodshot eyes are kind of turning white again, right? I can have this lie come into my mind that tells me it's okay to put the poison that was killing me and everybody else back in my body, right? You see, I knew, I know, I knew alcohol was destroying everything. I knew it. But when, it, when that obsession, that obsessive lie, I call the obsession either it's a, uh, a lie or a conversational lie, it usually comes in our, into our mind in the form of a conversation, an internal conversation. We don't tell anybody about it. We have it with ourselves, right? And uh, it sounds something like this. Jeez, nobody will know. Nobody will know. It'll be different this time. Right? How do you have that conversation? Those lies are so utterly ridiculous. To anybody that you would verbally tell them to, they'd look at you like, what are you, crazy? But they sound perfectly logical to us. Because all we need is, whatever the lie is, all we need to do is give ourselves permission to put a drink back in our body with the thought that it's not going to hurt us that time. That we're not going to lose everything. And no matter how many times you go through this, that obsessive lie will come in. So we need to be relieved of that obsessive lie or the body will never get relieved. You follow me? So we're going to talk about this a little bit more in depth in just a moment, but they say really uh, that uh, there are 100 men and women who have, been, who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. That means that the obsession is not there. Thus, the allergy doesn't get aggravated. We'll talk about that in a minute. It says to show other alcoholics, that's us, precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Right? It's the main purpose of this book. Now, I'm sure if they wanted us to know that... Now, listen, fellowship is important. It's vital. We're all in fellowship right now. We're in a meeting. Those that are watching at home, those are, that are watching here. But if they thought, or if their experience was that all you needed to do is to get together for an hour a day, which is important, it's vital, we'll talk about why, was the answer to recover from a hopeless state of mind and body, they'd have put it in here. But that wasn't their experience. You follow me? We needed to have something much more uh, powerful than that. Right? No human power. That means no matter if you got 50 in a room or 1,000 in a room, no human power could relieve me of my alcoholism. Right? So we need to be clear about that. Um. So then they talk about in the forward to the second edition, I'm just going to touch on this, that, they, that, the, uh, that, that since the original forward to the book was written in 1939, that's when this book was written, five, or, yeah, five years, four years, five years after the, Bill and Bob got together and had their little encounter, right? They wrote this book. <clears throat> but they were doing some things between July of 1935, right? May, May, May was it May? May of 1935, until they wrote this book. So there were things that, some things that they did, they were, and they did, them, they did them religiously every single day, that kept them sober, right? They, 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 had, they did some things that they had an experience where they recovered from the hopeless condition of mind and body, right? And then they wrote it down in 1939. So there's some 1935 to 1939 AA that I behoove everybody 
to investigate because it's really powerful. And you'll understand why this book is written in such masterly detail, right? So they say that uh, since the foreword was written to the book in 1939, a wholesale miracle has taken place. I don't know if you've ever thought about what that means, but that means that this miracle, this supernatural act, that is the that is the culmination of this process, the implementation of a design that literally changes you from who you were when you got here into who you possibly can be. All the possibilities, all the things that you would hope for your life, all the things that you would hope to have ingrained and, and, and emanate from your, from, your, from your core being, right? All those things are possible to everybody, not just to some of us. I used to say, God, if I, if I can recover, anybody can recover, right? Given where I came from. So... The wholesale miracle simply means that everybody has the same opportunity to get that miracle. It's existing on a large scale without discrimination. That's what wholesale means. It's existing on a large scale without discrimination. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what color you are. Where, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. But if you're committed and you have that gift of desperation, you're willing to follow somebody else's guidance. We certainly don't want to follow our own when we get here, right? We know where that leads, to more of the same. So um, that's great news. Right up front, great news. Uh, Yes, June 1935. So um, anyway, I'm going to get, I'm going to jump right into the meat and taters of Dr. Silkworth's opinion. Um, Bill Wilson had gone to, uh, the author of this book had gone to uh, detox a few times. Probably one of a few, right? Three or four. From what I understand, four, but three are noted in the book. And while detoxing, if think about this, that back then, there was only one, uh, there was only one um, result for an alcoholic. It was either death, which was probably, I would say, a good 90% of all of them, right? And then you had a certain number that would get, would get incarcerated for as long as whatever they got incarcerated for, or you went to an insane asylum. That was it. There was no treatment for staying stopped. They had none. Now, there were certain things going on back in that day that would, uh, that where there were small aggregate of recoveries uh, through a a spiritual type of program, right? But it wasn't really something that was like in every community on on the planet. So if you were were an alcoholic and you were kind of like sentenced to that street living and, and drinking yourself to death, like we see so many even today, you were hopeless. You you had you were basically waiting to die from the disease of alcoholism because there was no other solution. There was no solution, right? So, Doctor Silkworth was a nationally known doctor. He was a chief medical guy at a uh, uh, little hospital in New York City called Towns Hospital, and uh, he was a devoted, humble. Uh, wonderful human being when you when you read the history 
And um, he was attributed with treating, you know, upwards of 40,000 alcoholics and drug addicts, right? Or, or those that suffered from addiction to both. And, um, you know, when you see that many people and they come in and the only, the only process he had was to be able to get you undrunk, to re- get you to a place where you didn't have the booze in your body anymore, right? And then the only thing that they could do was send you right back out the front door and say, good luck. Well, a, a, a huge percentage came right back to that hospital, <laughs> just like they do here, just like I did. You know, bark down the street. I've been there. I don't even know how many times, right? It was uh, got to a t- got to a, a time when I just couldn't remember how many times they'd ask me when you you know they ask you when you go in how many times you've been. Uh, I don't know, a lot, right? Well. That's what Dr. Silkworth would witness. And he'd have to, you know, and, and it really took a toll on Dr. Silkworth. It broke his heart kind of like when we would come in and we would be completely annihilated again. And then he would have to get us undrunk through whatever treatment, the belladonna treatment, the hydrotherapy treatment, whatever it took to have us get detoxed from the booze and then send us right back out on the street. It was really frustrating for him. You know, and so he treated Bill Wilson and, uh, you know, through a chain of events, um, Bill got sober and we'll talk about that. But the fact is, is that Dr. Silkworth was so happy and so overjoyed at the fact that, you know, some people were starting to get sober based on what Bill had uh, experienced in his hospital during, during his last detox there, right? And um, so he kind of, he got on board, you know, and here's a medical doctor that stood the, stood the uh, probability to be ostracized from the medical community. Just, you know, because they, he was giving, he was giving credit and, 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 and credence to this, this movement, spiritual in nature, that was having people stay stopped, that were recovering from the disease of alcoholism. And he didn't, ha- you know, and for him to see that, it, he was overjoyed with it. And he became part of our, I mean, he became very close to our program. And uh, what he did was contribute this opinion based on his experience, right? So he says right in the beginning, he says, in 1934, I attended a patient, though he had been a competent businessman. You know, we're very successful people when we're committed to being successful. Of good earning capacity was an alcoholic of the type I had come to regard as hopeless. Hopeless. Another place in, the, in here, in, in, uh, after an experience that he had with, with someone, he goes, um, uh, where it says that if, if somebody had come to his hospital, if, if somebody had come to this this medical guy's hospital, he would have turned him away. Right? I mean, I, I, I'm, it's in here. Where is it? 43. 43. Oh, it's in Bill Stuttenberg. I can't find it. <laughs> it. says, as to two of you men whose stories I have heard, there's no doubt in my mind that you were 100% hopeless. They had a very dim view of people that were suffering from alcoholism. It says, it says, but here's what's key. It says, no doubt in my mind that you were 100% hopeless 
apart from divine help. Apart from divine help. They were saying that we, there's nothing more that we can do to help you, right? It says, um, had you offered yourselves as patients to this hospital, I would have not taken you if I could have avoided it. What, what disparaging news for, for people like us, right? So he contributed some things that I think are vital. Certainly changed my mind. And, and you know, later on in the program, it's going to talk about the, the, the conceding to our innermost selves a couple of points, a couple of key points. One, that I'm alcoholic and couldn't manage my own life, a.k.a. thinking. Let's remember, my life is a snapshot of my thinking. So it is synonymous. As I think, I do. Period. Thoughts always come first. Emotions come based on the thought. Actions come based on the emotion. And I get a result. So I think, I feel, I act, I get a result. And it's a very quick, synchronized thinking, right? I mean, it's a quick motion. So if that's the case, the first, the first thing I need to concede is that I am an alcoholic based on some information and that I could not manage my own life or thinking, right? Um, so the thing he talks about here is that uh, this man and over 100 others have recovered, and they, they use that word again, recovered, right? So um, a couple of key things in the doctor's opinion I think are extremely valuable and important. It says, um, the physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge on another letter, right? It says in this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. It doesn't say should believe. It doesn't say you might want to think about it for a minute, right? It says, in this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. That the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. This is the first time in recorded history that a medical man has ever said that. Okay? It says, um, it didn't satisfy us to be told that we couldn't control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life. That we were in full flight from reality. I'm sure there are some more choice words for that. Or were outright mental defectives. These things are true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, right? So for the first time in recorded history, he's telling people that are suffering from the disease of alcoholism that our bodies are just as abnormal or sick as our minds. You see, society had a very dim view of alcoholics. They had this view that we were immoral, weak-willed sinners, Almost as if we were serving a penance for our behavior with alcohol, right? To a large degree, not, to, not, not nearly as big as it was back then, but you know, to some degree, people still look at us like that. Why can't you just stop for her? Why can't you just stop for them? Why can't you just stop for that job? What's wrong with you? As if I should be able to say, I'm just not going to drink today. Like that, and, and not drink that day. I couldn't not drink, right? So this is the first time that, that this is brought to, brought to bear. It says, um, in our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. So 
There's something going on physically after we ingest this poison, after we ingest alcohol. But we would never ingest the alcohol unless our mind told us to do so, right? So um, then he goes into talking about uh, uh, we work out our solution on altruistic plane, which is simply uh, you know self, selfless concern for uh, the well-being of others. Um, and then he talks. Then he talks about. Then he goes into uh, some real factual information. This is not only it, it's it's become factual information. But initially, when he was talking about this and put this on paper, it was a theory. It was based on the evidence. It was based on the evidence of his experience with so many of us. Right? See the patterns. He drew some conclusions and came to some conclusions about. There's some things going on here with these people that you just can't say they're weak-willed, right? So it says, uh, we believe and suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol in these chronic alcoholics is the manifestation of an allergy. The word allergy is perfect for what he, for, and, you know, it just it boggles my mind that he would come up with these, these uh, uh, words that fit exactly what goes on with an alcoholic. He says, the man, he says the, the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is the manifestation of an allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class never occurs in the average temperate drinker. He says these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. Once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So what he's saying is that we suffer from this physical allergy, right? We talked a little bit about the obsessive conversational lie that we have with ourselves so that we can get permission from ourselves. Kind of crazy. Sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? Well, it is crazy. But where we then put it in our body, despite everything that's happened to us as a result of it. And he says this, this allergy creates this phenomenal uh, craving, right? Now, back when they deemed us a, a disease, disease, right? Uh, the American Medical Association, uh, you know, what happened was there was an influx of money to research alcoholism, clinical trials, testing, things of that nature. And they, uh, since through their testing, were able to say, no, this isn't a phenomenon. This is an actual physiological fact, that when we ingest alcohol, an actual craving develops, this physiological demand for more alcohol, right? So um, this, is the, this is the genius of this doctor being able to theorize this back then. Says, uh, so in other words, so we got this allergy that manifests itself, the action of alcohol manifests itself through this allergy to alcohol. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you have an allergy to strawberries... You know, some of you out there may in here that may have an allergy to strawberries, right? And you eat a strawberry, the manifestation of that allergy is the red rash that you get that ensues after ingesting a strawberry. So the symptom of that allergy is this red, red rash all over your body. Same thing with peanut oil or penicillin. You know, if for some reason you're in an accident and they take you to the hospital, they shoot you with penicillin or what have you, Right? From what I understand, the, act, the manifestation of that allergy is that you're, you swell. Your body swells, your, wind, your throat swells, your windpipe closes, 
you suffocate and die. You can die. Well, with alcohol, when you ingest alcohol, if you're a real alcoholic, if you're an alcoholic, when you ingest alcohol, it sets up this physiological demand for more alcohol. So you're not drinking for anything other than to overcome the craving set up by the ingestion of alcohol. Do you understand? So, um, and that's going to happen every time. We're going to have that allergy. If you're a real alcoholic, you're going to have that allergy until the day you die. Right? The key is we've got to work on the mind because that's where the obsession lies. Right? Um, it says this. It says, and this is Dr. Silkworth saying these things. It says, for all the emotional appeal seldom suffices. Right? That's kind of like a light and entertaining uh, appeal, but of little substance. That's what Webster says about frothy. Right? It says, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. Well, what in the world could that be? Well, let's see. I have a an explanation here. This is kind of what depth and weight would look like. That the man who's making the approach or talking to the fellow alcoholic has had the same difficulty. That he obviously knows what he's talking about. That his whole deportment shouts at the new prospect that he is the man with a real answer. That he has no attitude of holier than thou, Nothing whatever to be sincere, nothing whatever except a sincere desire to be helpful. That there are no fees to pay, no acts to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These would be the attributes of, a, of, a, of, of someone with depth and weight when you're communicating to another alcoholic. You land in their heart. They know you know, right? Um, what fascinates me is that he says in nearly all cases, this is Dr. Silk we're talking here, in nearly all cases their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their life. If you want to know what this book is all about, it's talking about recreation. Not a little fabrication, not a little alteration, not a little remodel. Not adding a few things and taking away a few things. Recreation. Caterpillar to the butterfly. You emerge one way and you come out a completely different way. They used to liken it to like near-death experiences. Whether it's gradual or sudden and profound, it doesn't matter. The end result is you see different, you feel different, you talk different, you experience different, and you interpret and perceive differently. Everything's different. Wow. That's pretty exciting for, for somebody that's been going through what we had to go through, right? And this is Dr. Silk were saying this in the beginning. So he knew, right? For him to draw that conclusion based on Bill and Bob and a few other people's you know, interpretation of this thing, that's fascinating. Now, what does that mean, though? In nearly all cases, that's just like a little disclaimer because there may be one or two that don't have that experience, right? I, I haven't met anybody like that. But it says in nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves. We kind of know what they're talking about with power greater than themselves. We're going to give that power a, a name here in a little while. A couple meetings from now, we'll, we'll give them a name. But he says their ideals. 
Notice he doesn't say ideas. Right? We don't want to go into this thing using our ideas. We're broken. <laughs> our ideas are broken. The way we think it is is not the way it is. Right? It's what we know that's killing us. Everything about recovery, our experience of life, relationships, God, that what doesn't matter what it is. If it, with respect to recovering, if you've been on a rodeo and you've been on a rodeo out there and wherever you are, you could be anywhere on Facebook or what is the other one? Uh, Zoom. If you've been going through the through this thing and heartache after heartache after heartache and you build the trust up of your family and you wrench it right out of them over and over and over. If you've been doing that, there's a reason that you've been doing it. It's because your approach to recovery was probably just like mine. I would always come in. I had I got to the point where I had to be separate, physically separated from alcohol. I had to go through the detox motion. I had to go through the halfway house motion. But I always had the same playbook. I had Joe's playbook. I had the same strategy, same approach, and same method every single time. And I wondered, well, why am I failing? It was what I knew that was killing me. It was what I knew about how to do this and how to approach it was killing me. I was following a broken mind to try and get well. How do you do that? You don't. Right? I only knew what I, was, what I knew. And what I knew was failing me. So I had to find out what I didn't know. Right? I had to find out what I didn't know. I had to incorporate something in within me. I had to be teachable. So anybody out there that's been struggling and you, you, you can't figure out why this keeps happening and you keep making the same attempts over and over and over, it's because the playbook you're operating from needs to be burned to the ground. It needs to be burned to the ground and you must become teachable. You have to become open to being taught. Right? We, it says this thing's going to beat us into a state of reasonableness. There's only one thing that booze and drugs must do. I can't do it for somebody. Michael can't do it for Nobody can do it for anybody. And that's beat me into a place of teachability. Booze and drugs must get me there. Got it? And if it hasn't, and there's still an argument, and there's still a debate, and there's still a need to negotiate on how I'm going to do this, and I want to pick and choose what I will do, what I won't do, what I will pay attention to, what I won't pay attention to, you're not done. And you will get done. You will get done. It will get you done. One way or another. Hopefully we live through it. Right? So he's talking about these ideals. These are things. These are concepts. Principles, if you will. In their most excellent form. Well, I mean, when you take, when you take principles like integrity. And responsibility. And brotherly love. And courage. And, and, and perseverance. I had none of those things in any form at all. I was the most irresponsible, unaccountable, undisciplined, uncommitted human being on the face of the earth. My mantra was, I always wanted something for nothing. I wanted to be given sobriety. I didn't want to earn it. I didn't want to do what it took. Right? Ideals. Right? Virtues. What are those? No wonder I ended up on the streets of Fort Lauderdale 
with my street of choice, you know, we always talk about drug addiction. My street of choice was Broward Boulevard. For 16 years, I would aimlessly wander in and out of Salvation Armies, out of bark detoxes, missions, homeless missions, with all my earthly belongings in a Publix bag, wandering nowhere. I come from a good family. I come from a very loving, beautiful family up in West Palm Beach. And they had to, they had to send me down the road. They couldn't take it anymore. I, went through, I've been, I have a college education. I have ability, talent, skills. I'm not a, a bad guy. I just bad, did bad things to support my habit. And that's where it took me. But it took 16 years in and out of AA to become teachable. Imagine that. I began in my early 20s and I didn't get sober till 44. I'm way older now. And it doesn't mean everything was smooth and bu- you know without bumps and, and, and interruptions. So I'll, I'll get into that later on. But so ideals, these, these concepts, these principles in their most excellent form. We talk about constitution, right? That I'm constitutionally, they describe us as, some, some of us as being constitutionally incapable of being honest with ourselves, right? Well, I was constitutionally incapable of a lot of things. Intimate, powerful, authentic, transparent relationships with other people. I had no intimacy with other people. You could, nobody could see into me. Nobody even knew who I was. Hell, I didn't even know who I was. My mom and dad didn't even, I mean, they'd always ask me, you know, when I get back on my feet and in a halfway house and I've got a little job, got a little money in my pocket, food in my stomach, they'd say, how you doing, honey? And I'd say, great. I'm doing great. And be dying inside. Just completely broken. I couldn't let anybody see my weakness. I couldn't let anybody see how shattered I was. I was an imposter. I was always that person I thought you wanted to see. So that if you thought I might be somebody or you were buying my game, that I might feel the same thing about me and it never worked. How you felt about me never made me feel the same way about me. So I couldn't, I couldn't disclose that guy. That phony, that fraud, I couldn't do it. You talk about broken, it was what I knew that was killing me. So I had to find out what I didn't know. And John finally said, Joe, he says, this isn't to, to broaden your, your, your knowledge. This is to shatter it to the ground, burn it to the ground so you can learn something different. Because if, if you don't go outside the box of your understanding of how to do, do things on this earth, you're a dead man walking. And I was a dead man walking, Right? So I have this allergy to alcohol, which is always preceded by the obsession of the mind. So I have this thing going on in my mind. It's, I'm going to read this because this is really where it comes, to, comes, to, uh, comes home, right? It says, um, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Yeah, Absolutely. I didn't quite understand what they were talking about because I always attributed it to what I wanted, what I, what I was looking for 
in any given situation, I need to be a little bit more fluent in my, in my talk. I need a little, bit, be a little bit more suave. I need to sell this game a little bit better. I need to whatever, steal something. I, you know, I had to have, there was always a, like an application for the effect. Sick. And I learned here that the very thing that men and women drink for was the thing that I had been looking for all my life before I even found alcohol. Right? It says this. It says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive. Now they're talking about, he's, he's describing an undrunk individual as I read this to you. They're not drunk at this moment. Right? It says, the sensation is so elusive that while we admit it's injurious or causing injury, we cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To us, our alcoholic life's lives seem the only normal ones. We are restless, irritable, and discontent unless we can again experience a sense of ease and comfort. There it is. There it is. I've been wanting ease and comfort all my life. I always felt awkward. I always felt like uncomfortable around people. I always felt like I needed to be something else in order for you to admire me or or validate me or think I was popular or think I was witty or think I was valuable in some way more than how I felt about myself. I don't know if anybody else has ever experienced that. Talk to a lot of people that say, yeah, right? So, that that was it. I mean, that, that answered everything for me. That was that was what I had always looked for. And when I found alcohol, I found that. So alcohol become my solution, not my problem. <laughs> it, you know, now it makes like perfect sense. And anybody in the choir is going, yeah, right. But if you're new, just know, think about it. What was I always looking for? I was always diseased. Inside, uncomfortable, not, not whole, you know what I mean, around people or certain situations. And uncomfortable. I was always like, uncomfortable. Like, who, what face do I need to put on? Who do I need to become? For this one or that one and the other one, it was always a moving target, right? Thinking that if you get, that whatever game I'm playing, whatever mask I'm wearing, that if you were to buy it, and say, yeah, you, you're a good guy, Joe. Maybe I'd feel like a good guy. Didn't quite feel like a good guy, though. But booze and drugs didn't make it, made it irrelevant, right? And he says here, he says, they become restless, irritable, discontented. Well, why am I feeling that way? Well, from the very beginning of when I started drinking, even beforehand, I became a liar, I was always lying. I was a habitual liar when I got here. I was a constant deceiver. I was always, listen, if you're uncomfortable and you don't want people to see the truth inside, you're always pretending to be somebody. I mean, for me, I was always pretending to be somebody else. I was living a lie, right? So no matter who showed up on the scene, you didn't get the guy that felt like, you know, it's, it's like you never saw how I truly felt about me. And if you did, you never saw me again in your entire life. I immediately avoided any kind of contact like that. If you even perceived that I was full of doo-doo, <laughs> right? So I, I had become this liar. 
liars can't be trusted. So I didn't, I, I, I didn't trust anybody else and nobody really trusted me. I couldn't keep my word. I took shortcuts on everything. I stole. I created tremendous worry in all the people that, that love me to, to pieces. I stole from them. I stole their emotions. I stole their time. I was always looking to them to help me out of the jams I got in, whether it was jail or, or whatever. So I was always constantly seeking something from somebody for a payoff. And it all was done with motive. When you do that to people and you become the lone wolf and add alcohol on top of that and disappear and come to and lose everything and come back, all those things that you do to the people that really love you that are just like you, you become their nightmare. What do you develop internally? Well, I think shame's a good one. Unbelievable shame, unbelievable regret, remorse, feeling like a loser, feeling like a failure. I tried to do this thing for 16 years, in and out, in and out, in and out. I build their trust up and I tear it down. I was never in. I was always in the pause. How you doing? Great. I think this is the time. Really? You don't think they had skepticism about that and were guarded every time I came to the house? Or their house? Of course they were. They were walking on eggshells every time I showed up because they could tell by looking at me and listening to me, it was the same game. Even though I was undrunk. Same BS, right? Listen, when you do these things to other people, you feel like their eyes are on you and they're, that, that, that they're, in their mind they're saying, what a loser. That's how I felt. I had come to the point where I felt like such a nobody, such a zero, and I was sure, and I made up, most of it's made up, that everybody thought that about me. You know, we kind of draw those conclusions based on how we feel about ourselves. Everybody must know it. It's like I can't hide it very well anymore. It's either that or I was in complete oblivion. Those very things have manifestations too. The internal diseases of the fear and the remorse and the shame and the bitterness have manifestations too. You know what he, he Silkward nailed it. Those manifestations come in the form of restlessness, irritability, and discontentedness. I was always on edge. Unless I could sense I had the sense of ease and comfort which came at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks I would see other people doing without danger. Kind of had a little resentment on them, right? Because I never got away with it, ever. It says, after they have succumbed, in other words, given in or put it in, right? To the desire again. Notice what he says there. After I've succumbed and put, succumbed means I drank, right? Based on the desire. Mind first, body second. Got it? The desire is just another word for obsession, is just another word for the lie. I can't drink in the truth. It has to be a lie. So regardless of the desire, it's, it's a phony form of what's creating the desire. Well, the ease and comfort that my body's screaming for. It says after they succumb to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, right? 
Right? I've already ingested it. Since we passed through the stages of a well-known spree or binge, emerging remorseful. Boy, did he nail that. He must have seen that thousands of times. I'm so sorry. I'm just, I'll never do it again. I promise. I just need $20. (laughs) And then I get into the treatment scene or the detox scene. He says, with a firm resolution not to do it again. I'll never do that stuff again. I'll never, man, there's nothing that can make me do that stuff again. And I'd be drunk just within hours of walking out of the place, right? Says, this is repeated over and over. And listen, if you're listening at home, And you're wondering why. There's no need to ask that question anymore. Because this is exactly what happens to us. It says, he said, this is repeated over and over. And unless this person, wherever you are, here, wherever, can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of your recovery. If that doesn't explain the rodeo, nothing will. Ease and comfort. I can't stand myself. I feel so uncomfortable. There's so much conflict and chaos going on inside me. And the worst part about it is getting into a room like this and pretending it don't exist. How you doing, Joe? I'm great. Isn't it great to be sober and be dying inside? Watching the clock. Is it like? Is it an hour yet? Or I gotta, I gotta go. Right? Isn't that the truth? So listen, when it says entire psychic change, I'm going to close with this. That's synonymous for spiritual awakening, spiritual experience, transformation, profound alteration in our reaction to life, conversion, whatever you want to call it. It's all the same thing. I must go from the caterpillar that I've become, that guy that walked through Many, many years ago, wanting that man so badly to die, little did I know that I would come in and meet a teacher that showed me this book and taught me this information, and I implemented this design, and that man did die. I'm not that guy, that troll walking up and down Broward Boulevard anymore. Michael and I have known each other for a long time. I have been saved by a loving incredible God that adores me because he gave us this program and he chose us to be exposed to it and have the same opportunity. What an unbelievable gift. That's kind of like we treat this with such preciousness, right? Thanks a lot for letting me be here tonight. Great. Uh, where am I? Sorry. All right, I'd like to thank the speaker again. Joe, that was fantastic. Uh, now I'd like to uh, get switching hats, Sammy, Joey the Jokester, up here to do the secretary report. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Joe. That was amazing. Um, All right. Um, I'm now your recovered alcoholic secretary. My name is Joe as well. Um, Hello, everyone. It's a popular name for this series. Um, All right. 
In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. Um, at this time, baskets are going around in here, out there. Um, you guys have the opportunity to go to aa.org and give online. Um, uh, intergroup is uh, not doing its best with all the lack of flesh and bone meanings. So they can definitely use your contribution. They are going using their prudent reserves. They have been the last couple of months, thanks to Miss COVID. So please uh, go give online. Thank you. At this time, I've asked my buddy Zach to come read the recovered statement. As Joe went over in the book, um, reading in the preface and the forwards, he uh, we discussed the recovered um, and exactly what that means. We're going to have Zach. Uh, specifically uh, give the definition for us. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much. I do appreciate uh, you being the secretary. And Joe Bear, um, I have to say, before I read the recovered speech, I know you almost intimately. I've watched you speak many, many times. I assume you're still on fire because of the fact that um, you stay with this. And... They say I'm supposed to be the most uh, important person in the room because I was 17 days. Um, you're the most important person to me today. Uh-huh. You want to know why? Because what you said to me four years ago, and I'll say right now, um, you know, I've been running for a while. What you said to me four years ago didn't resonate at the time. Today, today it did because I've surrendered. I've surrendered everything, everything. I told another man, show me how to live. Show me how to be. What can I do? And we're all sick, and I'm especially sick. But recovered, we are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we're not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for a lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind, rather than in his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thank you, Zach. All right. 1940-style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition, Alcoholics Anonymous. Of Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75-plus percent success rate. All right, so now I'm going to ask for everyone in Zoom slash Facebook land and here um, for you to raise your hand if you are a recovered alcoholic. Beautiful. Um, And now I'm going to ask for all you brave individuals to raise your hand if you need a sponsor. Out there in Zoom world, Facebook here. 
Um, so anyone that has was seen with their hand raised for needing a sponsor, recovered alcoholics, go reach out to them. Um, you guys can help bring them to, bring them back to God. Thank you. All right. Now, uh, Monday nights, we have a meeting in here. It's a great meeting. Big book study meeting um, with uh, Mike Chase, Old Bill, and um, Chris on traditions. It's a great time. Start uh, Fellowship starts at 630 in the Zoom room. Come on in, say hello to each other. And the meeting itself will start at 715. So we look forward to seeing you guys there. Another way you can contribute to this beautiful, lovely program um, is you go to your local intergroup. Just pop on in there or go online and uh, pick up some CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red books, or big book dictionaries. See how everyone's doing in there. Um, make a contribution. It's a beautiful thing. Um, masks, of course. You, get, you, you guys get it. We meet every Thursday here promptly at 715. We ask you to be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Thank you all. See you next week. Uh, once again, I would like to invite everyone to our Monday Night Big Book Study. Um, and to those who wish to thank tonight's speaker, please uh, line up over there near him uh, one at a time. <laughs> uh, now let's close with the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever and ever. See you all Monday or next Thursday night. Godspeed. Yeah, yeah. Body's heavy. Soul is thirsty. Body's aching. I am desperately in need of restoration. Yeah.
doodles and sounds and oh when you smiling When you laughing, ba 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 ba. When you laughing, yes, the sun comes shining through. But when you crying.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. See the light. 
lessons by my door to sleep at night and I dream now song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> 